Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us through your Son, Jesus Christ, to be peoples of mercy as you have shown us mercy through him. Let us learn to be merciful unto all. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The gospel passage this morning comes at the end of a series of little lessons by Christ to his disciples about the nature of forgiveness and repentance. What forgiveness, confrontation, and repentance looks like is spelled out in this 18th chapter of Saint, the gospel according to St. Matthew. But this one leaves us with this wondering how then shall we forgive? Or perhaps differently said, what does forgiveness look like within the covenant of grace which Christians enjoy? I think that this can be a struggle, for we know that this world is dark and terrible, and we've seen awful things done by many, either to us, our loved ones, or around the world. As I've wrestled with this topic and how to talk of it, I was reminded this week of a story written by Corey Tenboom, who I've mentioned before. Corey Tenboom was a woman who hid Jews in her house from the Gentiles, from the Nazis, in order to keep them safe. The rest of the story will make itself clear as to why this is important. I'm fairly certain I've told some of you this story before, but I want to read from her words exactly. She writes, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-sat man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to Germany with a message that God forgives. This was the truth that they needed to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I was glad, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from the Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's where forgiveness of sins were thrown, where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence collect collected their wraps. In silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and brown hat. The next a blue uniform, a visored cap, and its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, 
the huge room with the harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister, frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Froilin, how good it is to know that as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the ocean. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prison among thousands of woman, women? I remembered him, the, re the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, I went on and, be, and I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. And again, he, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, whose sins had every day been forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours. I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message of God's forgiveness has a prior condition that we forgive those who injure us. If we do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I know it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience since the end of the war, and I had come home to Holland for the vic I'd I had a home in Holland for the victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And as I stood still with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness was not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. Can I lift my hand? Can I do that much? You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprung into the joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, 
prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This story, as hard as it may be, exemplifies that love and grace of Christ. And there are two takeaways that she brings out. The story goes on, and if you want to read it, I can send you the entire story about another set of forgivenesses that she struggled with. And she spells out the toll that unforgiveness takes upon us. But from this short part of the vignette, there's two parts that we notice. First, your sins are daily cast to the bottom of the ocean. As we come to Christ throughout the day, day in and day out, and say, have forgiveness upon me, they are cast away, as she said, to the bottom of the ocean. But forgiving others as well can be a difficult and painful task, and it requires that we depend totally on the strength of Christ. As we move into the text, there's the question that opens it with Peter. And he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I suspect he thought himself to be generous. As he said, as many as seven times, perhaps he thought back to an old friend who is not as kind as he should be or who was perpetually late, or who had borrowed something and never gave it back more than once. And he thought, well, I forgave him six times. Maybe I should have done it a seventh, but that would have been plenty. But Christ responds, I do not say seven times, but as many as 77 times. This, this saying, perhaps, is odd to us. And it alludes to something that we could easily overlook. It alludes to like the great, great, great grandson of Cain. Perhaps you remember Cain and his awful interactions with his brother Abel as he murders him. Cain likewise murders somebody. Or Lamech, his great, great grandson, also murders somebody. And Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I have said. I have killed a man for the wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Christ alludes to this as if to say, the evil of the days of Cain were so great that it knew no evil. Likewise, if you are in Christ, there is no limits to the mercy and forgiveness that you are called to. If we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, there is no limit to that mercy that you are called to. Christ then goes on to tell a parable to spell out this example. A king wishes to sell his account and brings before him a servant or a slave, depending on how you read it, who owes him 10,000 talents. And you may think, well, that sounds like an awful lot. But how much is it? Maybe it's like $10,000. That's a lot, but it's doable. Selling him off seems maybe a bit extreme. 
Or maybe you know what a talent is, and you know that this would add up to something in the range of $6 billion. A servant could never repay that. And so to sell him into slavery was merely a form of punishment to him. <clears throat> and we think about this, and there's a few ways that we can think about this billion-dollar debt that the servant has racked up. I think it's kind of hard for us to imagine. But of course, what Christ is talking about here is our sin. Our sin, which trails out behind us as though it is a bag of sand in a loosely stitched bag. I lived on an island in Maine for some time. And on the island, most of the residents were like you and I, somewhere in the middle class range. Many people were worked as fishermen and did fairly well in that life. But there was another class of people whom we didn't often associate with, and that was the absurdly rich. The name that you might recognize from this is the Rockefellers. The Rockefellers were so rich, or are so rich, unless something has changed that I haven't heard about, that they were able to hire entire people, like many, many people, to work for them, to keep up their house, to keep up their gardens, and in fact, even to grow them food and to have cows that they could have their own beef from. For me, at least... I can't fathom being able to pay one person's salary, not to mention dozens of people's salaries, because I have that much money. I use this example because when we think of our sin and God's holiness, the difference is that vast. The difference is so vast that I don't think we can necessarily fathom the depth and breadth of how holy God is in comparison to us. And this is what that king and the servant's debt represents. It is vast and unpayable. But the servant begs, prays for mercy. And just as God is merciful to us in Christ, the servant receives mercy. The king shows him mercy just as Christ has paid all of your debt. It radically ought to change our lives. But does it change the servant's life? Does it change this slave's life? He goes out and quickly meets one who owes him a hundred denarii. And perhaps you again are thinking, well, what is a denarii? Maybe that's a lot of money. Maybe it's not. In this case, it is a fair amount of money, but nothing compared to the billions of dollars that the slave owed the king. No, his fellow slave probably owed him about $10,000 in modern times, an amount that at least I couldn't write a check if I owed you $10,000 for, but I could surely pay you back over a little bit of time if you were patient. And that's the irony here, of course, right? That the slave probably could have been paid back by his friend. But he said, no, I want my money now. And then he does something awful, doesn't he? He beats up his friend, 
And when he still doesn't pay him back, he throws him into jail. And his fellow slaves are appalled at what they have seen. His fellow servants look at him and say, what has he done? Why has his heart not been changed? When we fail to act in the mercy that Christ has extended to us, when we fail not to when we fail to be merciful, what does that say to the world who sees the depth and breadth of the forgiveness we claim to enjoy? It says this man, this woman's life has not really been changed by this mercy that we enjoy. And of course, the master is angry. God has given us new hearts. God has given you a new heart. Do not waste it. Do not waste it with anger and bitterness. Rather, be his servant, not a slave to sin. But then something horrible happens. The servant turns him over to a jailer. It's actually a wicked and evil jailer, but that is a bit lost in our translation. But it is just as if we choose to be a slave to our sin, that at some point, God will turn us over to that sin. St. Paul writes about this in the beginning of the epistle to the Romans, as he writes, as he writes, Therefore God gave them up to lusts of their hearts, to impurities, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. But there is good news in this. There is good news that in that mercy that we experience, our hearts can be changed. Our hard and rocky hearts can be softened that they show mercy just as Christ has showed us mercy. And in that, we are called to be peacemakers. I read this book this week that is about that topic exactly, and I hadn't much thought about the relationship between being a peacemaker and being merciful. Being a peacemaker in Christ does not mean that you overlook bad or pretend that it is good, but it means that you approach things and have a heightened understanding of both justice and mercy. Both first the mercy that you enjoy in Christ, but then that you may throw, pour out mercy just as Christ's mercy has been poured out upon you. In the same Beatitudes, Christ says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are you who have received mercy, and likewise show mercy. Do you see the depth and breadth of God's, the, of the forgiveness that God has given to you? as your sin trails behind you, is thrown into the depths of the ocean? Will you show mercy in a dark and dying and painful world? Will you accept the power of Christ to fulfill this call to bring peace where only hatred and vengeance now reside?
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.